Welcome to a very special Henry Now and Now and Then podcast. This is our Christmas gift to all those who are part of our podcast and YouTube community of listeners. I'm Karen Pascal, the Executive Director of the Henry Now and Society. This episode is the first of a series of programs drawn from a conversation between Father Henry Nowen and Reverend Brian Stiller. In 1995, these two met at L'Arche Daybreak, a home where Henry Nowen lived the last 10 years of his life. Though we shared this interview once before as a podcast, this time we're making it available both as a podcast and as a YouTube presentation on our YouTube channel. The conversation is so animated and engaging. I encourage you to take time to watch it as well as listen to it as a podcast. This first segment gives us Henry's personal story and the deep roots of his faith. It tells us how he chose to integrate faith and psychology and how he used the classroom as his pulpit. This whole recording is the very best interview we have with Henry now. And Brian is brilliant in his questions and Henry is profound and insightful in his answers. In this interview, Henry gives us the essence of the gospel. Henry, wonderful to have you with us today. Uh, Henry Nowen is a, a scholar, a writer, a pastor, and a friend, and one who speaks to us about the deep issues of spirituality and what it means to walk with Christ. Uh, Henry, your, your childhood was shaped in Holland during the time of occupation. Uh, what did that do to the formation of your mind and heart and your, and your understanding of God at work in life? Well, it's, it's interesting. I had an extremely loving, caring family. And that love and care became particularly clear in a time of enormous amount of stresses and struggles. And so I grew up, grew up during the war years. And my father and mother really, really did every possible thing to, uh, to protect us from the violence and, and the ugliness of the war and to, to give us a very regular life. And both of my parents were deeply, deeply spiritual people uh, with a great love for Jesus and a great uh, desire uh, to have their children go that way. And even my grandmother was, was even more uh, a person who, who nurtured my spiritual life very, very much. So when I was five years old, I wanted to become a priest already. <laughs> I actually never changed my mind. I, uh, I had that desire from very, very young, uh, as a very young child. And what, was there encouragement by your parents to think that way, or did you just well, come? Well, yeah, it was the, the climate. I mean, the, it was a, you know, we lived a very, uh, my father's a lawyer, and, uh, and uh, my mother was a very sensitive person with an enormous literary sensitivity. And they, they both encouraged uh, our whole family to live, to live a life of prayer and a life of, uh, you know, of, of, of spiritual reading and so on. And, um, and somehow the desire was there when I was very young. I was the oldest son. And, uh, and in our family, we had, uh, my uncle was a priest. And, uh, but um, yeah, it came very naturally. And uh, when I was even very, very young, I was already thinking about myself as, as, as being close to Christ, but also to, to be a minister somewhere. You tell the story when the SS troops were trying to take your father away, yeah. and they had, he had built this hiding place yes. in your home, and he was hiding there one day when the SS troops came in, and yeah. you were about to take him some food, and you didn't. As, as, that, as, as the fear element of that moment, what did that do to your understanding of, of, of God at work in your own life? 
Well, I was quite young, you know, and, and I, I, I somewhere mm, I felt very, very uh, protected by God, in fact, in, in all of that. And um, where uh, I must even say that the, the German occupation and the time of war, in a way, was a time in which we, we were encouraged very much to deepen the spiritual life. I've, I've never felt, um, you know, so spiritual and so religious precisely when our family had to be very close and, and very protective and we prayed a lot and we, we brought people in, in the circle of prayer. And it was, uh, yeah, I don't remember that time um, as a time in which I questioned God or wondered how God could allow all these things to happen. That wasn't part of my, my emotional uh, upbringing or thinking at all. You know, Henry, as I read your material and the many, many books that you've written, uh, it seems to me the central element of your writing and your ministry is defined by hope. And as I reflect on your, your time during occupation, the despair of that occupation, is that where you first learned about the hope element of the gospel? I don't dare think, don't think so. I, I, you know, it was just like, you know, it was the, 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 what I, I learned very young that, 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 that God was real and Jesus was very, very present. I remember as a little child, but mostly when I became around 10, I could hardly believe that anyone did not believe in Jesus or anyone did not believe in God. And, and I think what, what, what it meant was that, that I sort of felt an intimacy and a closeness and a, and a, and a directness about my relationship with God that was sort of as close as, as you sitting here in front of me. And, and it was amazingly, it was an obviousness to it and a directness to it. Prayer was not a problem. I just loved to pray. I loved to be in church. I loved to hear about it. I listened to every radio program. And it wasn't that I was particularly pious compared with other people. It was just natural, normal surroundings. And, um, and it was much more than that than, than the war uh, that, uh, that, that developed in me, that whole you know, hope in God. And it was not so much hope in God that something would go better as well as, as I would need to see the, the experience of God's presence here and now in our daily life. It was very, very real. And only later, it's interesting, um, that uh, when I already was ordained a priest, I had to discover that that feeling or that emotion isn't always there. And even today, I have to sometimes remember these experiences of intimacy that sometimes later aren't there anymore. And then it becomes a question of faithfulness, even when my, my, my heart or my body or my, 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 my mind isn't always fully there. You know what I mean? Yes. And so. But then as, you, as, I, as I kind of walk with you through your life, you go, you become a scholar, you become well-trained to the universities of the world, but then you go, you, you move towards an interest in psychology and your life changes from being a scholar academic to being a psychologist and then a pastor. And then you go to Burio in Peru and you live with the poor. And tell us about that that pilgrimage of your life and, and why you made that choice out of academia, out of the great halls of Harvard to care for uh, mentally handicapped uh, here in, uh, in Canada. Well, as I was saying to you, from the very early on I wanted to be a priest. 
and that I wanted to, to speak about God to people and to bring people closer into the relationship with God. That was sort of a, a desire I had as a child. That's why I went to the seminary. The uh, uh, diocesan seminary so I could be ordained young and could work in a parish. And when I was ordained, uh, the bishop uh, didn't send me to the parish, but said, you know, what, you'd like you to go on and study. And I said, what I would like to study is not more theology, but psychology, because I want to know a little bit more about how people behave, how they think, how they feel, what's going on in people's life. But after I'd finished psychology, and I was a psychologist, and I knew about diagnosis and about therapy, I suddenly realized that I had to integrate my spiritual journey at home and in the seminary with this psychological knowledge that I had. I, I didn't want to become a psychologist. I always wanted to be a minister who has an understanding of psychology. So I, I applied for a fellowship and I was accepted at the Menninger Clinic in Topeka, Kansas, which had a program called Religion and Psychiatry. And that was a very, very influential time for me, uh, where I, um, under the influence of Carl Menninger and others, I, I learned to integrate my spiritual journey with my psychological knowledge and my psychological understanding and so forth. And I had excellent supervisors. But when I finished that, I just was invited to, uh, by the University of Notre Dame to, to come there and to help out a little bit in a new psychology department. And so I, I wrote the bishop and said, well, I can come home yet. It wouldn't be all right if I, if I accept that for a while. And he said, he said, yes, do it. And so I started to teach. But my teaching from the very beginning, and I would say to the very end, was more a pastoral teaching than a scholarly teaching. I was very much interested in, in bringing people into a, into a uh, knowledge of God that was very real, very simple, very direct, and very, very much helping them in their own journey. So I, I never thought of myself very much as a scholar. I thought of myself, uh, I would say, I would really say as a, as, as a pastor who used the classroom as its pulpit, you know what I mean? Uh, even though I did a lot of, of research and a lot of academic work, the, 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 the main interest for me was always um, ministerial formation. And even in the psychology department, I invited priests uh, and, and ministers to come and you know, do pastoral psychology. And when I went back to Holland for a little bit, I studied another little bit, a few years of theology to reconnect with the theological uh, uh, tradition. And then I was invited to Yale uh, to, to be there in the theology department uh, at the Divinity School. And I, I, I was suddenly um, found myself surrounded with, with hundreds of young people, women and men from all religious denominations, from backgrounds, you know, all from Baptists and Congregationalists and Episcopalians and people from Methodist background and some Catholics and, you know, and this was a man and women from, you know, and I was absolutely fascinated when I was invited to come to this school that was enormously rich in variation and so, and I was invited to, to be a pastoral theologian there, but they gave me an enormous amount of freedom and I felt what I had to teach was to integrate uh, the integration between the spiritual life and the life of ministry. See, that's what I was interested in. But, but it's, it seems that, that, that your, your ministry wasn't just to be a, to use a pulpit and a psychiatrist couch side by side. No, 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 no. But no. That indeed, you were exploring other people's needs through your own pain and suffering in your personal journey. So there yeah. was a, 
There was a that deep integration yeah. of self into your ministry. Yeah. I was very, very convinced from the very beginning that that ministry is to lay down your life for your friends, okay? Like Jesus said, being a shepherd is the one who lays down his life for his friends. But laying down your life, you have to have first a life to lay down, you know? You have to know who you are. And by laying down your life, I don't mean physical martyrdom. I meant your pain, your anguish, your doubts, your confusion, your, your this struggle with your sexuality, your struggle with relationships, you, you, you knowing and not knowing, and the whole complex you're dealing with living in a world where there's a lot of injustices. So you live all that interiorly. And how can you, how can you get in touch with what you're living? How can you really enter into that and discover there God's healing grace and and when you and to make that experience that adventure with God is in your own life as as a kind of the source of your ministry and that's how I even got up got to this concept of wounded healer uh, that that came out of my own sense of loneliness when I came to the States I wasn't you know wasn't uh, feeling all that connected my feeling of um, you know uh, my need for friendship and community and I didn't have that very much, my anxiety, whether I would do well or not so well. All these these human struggles that everybody has, I started to try to articulate that, to, to find words around it and to and and then to say, well, well, if you're in touch with that, then you can bring other people in touch with that. And then you you become like the, the fertile ground <laughs> for God to 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 let the word sink in, you know what I mean? It's like it's like it's like if the ground is not broken up, uh, how can the seed sink in? And I felt more important than announcing good news was first of all to to break the ground where the good news can bear fruit. You know what I mean? Uh, I'm ordained as you are, and so as as in a sense yeah. church professionals, uh, the, the the tradition has been for us to be kind of have it all together and be the dispensers of grace and dispensers of wisdom. And so to be a wounded healer really cuts across the grain of professionalism in our culture, doesn't it? It does, it does. I think, I think we live in a world where professionalism suggests that somebody are strong and others are weak or some people have it together and others not and that those who are strong should help the weak. Now that's not, I don't think, what the gospel is speaking about. I think it, it belongs to the center of the gospel that God became vulnerable, that God stripped himself from power, that he didn't cling to his equality with God, but emptied himself and became a human being like we are. And that the essence of, of our faith is that, that, that Jesus became in everything like we are, and, and I think that, that that means, basically for me personally, uh, as a follower of Jesus, what I have to offer is, is, first of all, my own vulnerability, my own weakness, my own brokenness, my own uh, wounds. Now, not uncared for. I mean, I, I, I mean I have to, my wounds can only be a source of healing for others if I care for my wounds, if I bandage them well, if I pay attention to that. But basically, my, my gift is, is not my power, but my willingness to be powerless with other people who are powerless and, and to create a, a fellowship of the weak. 
and trust that there God's, God's healing power will become visible. I mean, I'm very, very convinced that, that what we have to offer is, 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 is vulnerability, to lay down your life for your friends, to, to, be, uh, to be compassionate, that means to suffer with, to, to feel the anguish and the pain of others in your own guts so that you can be with people. I mean, just, just for a second, just look at the story of Jesus and Naim. Mm -hmm. The woman of Naim, the woman of Naim who, uh, who brings her, her, her only uh, son to the grave. Uh, and Jesus sees a widow, who, that means he lost her husband, see, and he has only one son who died. And, and, it, and it says Jesus was moved by compassion. And if you literally look to the Greek, it says he, he felt the suffering of that woman in his guts. There's a Greek word, splunknitsomai, and the word splunknitsomai means guts. Jesus experienced the anguish, the loneliness, the pain of that woman in his own interiority. And he could be with her so close uh, that, that, that in that closeness, he, he, uh, he, he was moved so much that it was a movement to life. Mm. And, and, and therefore was able to give the son back to the mother. But, uh, but the miracle is not that the son was raised to life. I mean, the son is going to die later on anyhow. But the, the, the miracle was that, that Jesus loved so deeply and affectionately this mother that he, he gave her back uh, new life. You know, and, and, so, and I think that's, that's what ministry is about, is, is to, 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 to not worrying about raising dead people to life, but first of all, to be compassionate with those who suffer losses and trust that that will give life. <laughs> that's something else. The first time we met Henry was at the parliamentary prayer breakfast mm -hmm. in Ottawa. I did the evening uh, yeah. dinner and you did the morning breakfast. Uh -huh. And uh, I was astounded by your approach uh, you were standing in uh, at the uh, uh -huh. in front of the head table, and the prime minister was yeah. there, and the heads of the opposition parties, and the head of the Senate, and the uh, head of the Supreme Court, and the Speaker of the House, uh, all the symbols of power. And you stood, and you opened by saying, "I have a word of God from God for you today." And I thought, how audacious! <laughs> But it was interesting as people just sat back and you could almost see by their body language they were, they were saying, and what is that word? If, if other people that I know who are public as religious spokespeople had said that, they would have said, who do you think you are? But there was something out of your, your weakness. That day you had spiritual power. Mm -hmm. How does that come to you? How do you... How do you appropriate the power of God in your own brokenness and weakness? So you were spiritually powerful to the powerful, and yet you were weak. Well, power, the power of God becomes visible through our powerlessness. And first of all, that's what you see in Jesus. Jesus is the most powerless of all human beings. I mean, he, is, he not only became human, but he, he died in the most, uh, most horrendous death, stripped 
not only from his clothes, but stripped from friends, stripped from his experience of God. God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Jesus was completely powerless. And you hang on this cross with nothing. And, and, it's, and then this incredible uh, word that John says, and I am standing here, and out of his side came water and blood as signs of life. You know, new life was born at the moment of total, total um, emptying. And I think, I think when I was claiming some authority, it, it was, it was uh, an authority that I claim not because I know something or I have a particular voice that speaks to me, but it was more that I, I felt very much that I, that I, who live with very weak people, very broken people, very, very nonverbal people, a community of very weakness, that in that community I had discovered and seen the power of God and the power of God's healing, the power of God's love that comes out of, out of brokenness, out of weakness, out of vulnerability, out of people who are very marginal, very poor, very, um, and quite often, quote, useless in the eyes of the world. And I discovered that precisely there, you know, where people are poor, and where I am poor, and where we are poor, God's, God's power is manifest, and we are empowered. But it's not a power that comes from, from control, that it's not a power that comes from having things uh, all in your hands. In fact, it's the powerlessness of the person who, who finally stretched out his hand and is girded and led to places he rather wouldn't go. And I felt very, very free to say, you know, uh, I'm a very powerless person. I live with powerless people, but I am deeply convinced that, that this is the place from where I have something to say that comes from God. But that's so radically different from the whole cultural assumption of power and authority. Well, it is, but that's the gospel. It's countercultural in that sense. That, that, that's also what it means for me to live in a community uh, where I am now. Uh, that's why I finally chose to, to leave the university and, and, and join a community. Is, is that so to be empowered by the poor, to be empowered, not so much, I don't have power because I have a degree in theology. I'm not powered because I read many books or I'm not powered because I know so many things. I might know a few, but basically I'm, I'm not, not where my power comes from. My power comes from the empowerment through living with the poor. That's where it comes from. And that's what, you know, that's what the whole center of the gospel is about. Blessed are the poor. Jesus doesn't say blessed are those who care for the poor. Jesus doesn't say blessed are those who help the poor. Jesus says blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who grieve. They will be consoled. It doesn't say blessed are the consolers. Blessed are the helpers. Blessed are those who know better. It says blessed are those who are weak, who are broken, who are poor, who are mourning, who don't have it together. Because in their brokenness there is a blessing hidden. And blessing means a power of God's presence. There are good words hidden. You know, blessing comes from benediction. Bene means good. Diction means saying things. And God is saying good things precisely in the place where people are broken and weak. And that's where the healing power of God can become manifest. You know, and, and, and I think that's what I've seen. I've seen it all the time. I mean, it's not an idea. I mean, this is what, what I'm living day by day. I'm, I'm living with people who don't speak people who don't walk, people who are very, very weak, but in fact who, who radiates out of them 
God's healing power. But it isn't just the fact that they are poor or that they're weak, but that God, but is it because God is at work within their poverty and their brokenness? Like is poverty and brokenness of itself God speaking, or is it the world or the environment or the means by which God speaks? Well, God had chosen the weak to shame the strong. It's, it, Paul speaks about in Corinthians. Um, uh, he had chosen the little ones, those who are not wise. He got keep choosing those who are on the margin of the society to speak, to speak, because those who have nothing to lose, who in a way are poor, that means have nothing to lose, are the ones who become the carrier of good news. You know, it's, it's very, it's very real, you know, you know, what is, what is important in life? What is important in life? Important in life is um, things like, like, um, knowing that you are loved, knowing that you belong, knowing that you are not, uh, that you're not, um, an outcast. No, 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 knowing that you, you're somewhere safe. And, and, and in the world in which we live, in the world in which we live, I mean, people are saying, you know, you, you better prove that you are good. You know, why don't you do something relevant? Okay, why don't you do something relevant so you, people can, uh, can say you're a successful person? Why do you do something that makes you popular? You know, so people see you and you have a good name. Why do you have a little power so you can influence people with your with whatever you, you, you have, you know? And, and Jesus is saying these are temptations. You know, I, Jesus is saying himself, I don't need to prove to the world that I'm loved. You know, I don't need to change stones into bread, which is to be relevant. I don't need to jump from the tower to be on television, to be popular. I don't need to kneel down and have power. I don't need any of that to prove that I am the beloved son of God, that I am the beloved child of God. I just am by the beloved. I am. That's there. And, you know, and I'm saying all this because the people that I'm living with are precisely the people who, who aren't successful, aren't popular, aren't powerful, and in a mysterious way because they aren't able to prove anything they can live out the truth of who they are. That in their brokenness, in their weakness, in their inability to be successful and popular and powerful, they communicate some, somewhere in a very direct way that they are the beloved children of God. And my task as an articulate person who can talk and can do a lot of things is in a way to bring these gifts of the poor to the front and offer them to our society as a source of healing. Is that why the gospel calls us to conversion, to, to the That's new right. birth? Because it's so radical in, uh, in, in opposition to the cultural norms, the cultural, the prevailing attitudes of today. Oh, it's, it's enormously uh, That's why radical. conversion is essential to a person coming to Christ? But conversion, conversion is, first of all, is an ongoing thing. It doesn't happen once. Conversion is a lifelong process. Conversion is claiming again and again and again the truth of myself. And what is the truth of myself? That I'm God's beloved child. Long before I was born, and my father and mother and my teachers and my church got involved, and I will be God's beloved child long after I've died. I go from, from God's intimate 
embrace until God's intimate embrace. God says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. I've loved you uh, before you were born. <laughs> I have, I've knitted you together in your mother's womb. I have molded you in the, in the depths of the world. I was there long before any human being was there. And I, I loved you and loved you and I've written your name in my hand. You're safe in the palm of my hand. Long before you were born. And I'm sending you into this world for a little time, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years. That's just a little bit. So that you have a chance to say, I love you too. See, that's what life is about. Life is simply saying yes to God's, to God saying, I love you. And you say, yes, I want to say yes to that. I want to say yes. I, I, and all the struggle and the pain and the anguish and the losses that take place in our lives are endless opportunities to claim God's love. I lose my mother and I'm in deep grief, but can I live that grief as a way to say yes to my lovedness, belovedness, before I was born? You know, I lose a job. Can I somewhere live it, not to become bitter or angry or, or, or resentful or jealous, but can I somewhere claim that even though I lost my job, even though I'm not relevant, even though people pray, uh, praise me, even I'm not a big shot, that still I'm the beloved child of God, I can start living from that place. Uh, see, that's the spiritual life, to live from the place of your spiritual truths. And see, that's what Jesus heard in, in the Jordan when he came out of the water. A voice came and said, you are my beloved son, on you my favor rest. And Jesus lived from that place. And people loved him, and people hated him, and people said, Hosanna, and people said, Christopher, all that was happening. But Jesus says, I remain the beloved son of God. And everybody believes me, but my father will never leave me alone. You know, and it's from that place, and he calls us to believe that you and I are as beloved and as, as important to God as Jesus. And we, we shouldn't say, well, Jesus was, was the Son of God, and we are not. I mean, Jesus says, just as the Father loved me, so he loves you. He calls you the beloved. You are becoming, I'm calling you to claim the truth of your, your divine child, that you are a child of God divine childhood so what I mean? and and we have to claim it for ourselves and and here and now uh, in the christian community in the place where we're living i'm not talking about some sentimental thinking back to 2000 years ago i i'm thinking and i this is my big struggle and i had it all the way through you know can i keep believing that even when people don't like me i'm still and still acting. And then you say something to me that's hostile, can I still respond to you from the place of my belovedness? You reject me or somebody else rejects me, can I still respond to that from my place of belovedness? Can I still live, live from the place of my truth? Isn't this the very best of Henry now and in conversation? I am sure you want to hear more. We plan to post part two of this very rich, deep dialogue of faith at the beginning of the new year. Thank you for being with us today on Henry Now and Now and Then. If you'd like to watch this amazing interview, you can see it on our YouTube channel. I hope you have already signed up to receive our daily meditations written by Henry Nowen. If not, you can do that on our website at henrynowen.org. Remember, they're free, and they are a wonderful way to stay informed about the various things we have to offer to those who enjoy the writings and the teachings of Henry Nowen. We would also be so grateful if you consider donating to the Henry Nowen Society. Your resources help us share the daily meditations and these podcasts right around the world. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please take time to give us a review or a thumbs up 
or pass this on to your friends and family. Thanks for listening. Until next time.